Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. What is the best find that you've ever made at a thrift store? Maybe it was an old piece of furniture, some vintage clothing, perhaps. I found a beautiful leather jacket once at a store in Spain for just 20 bucks. But what if you had a hunch that your great find shouldn't have been there at all? I can't do anything with the head until I find out how the head got here. Um, And I, I don't want to inadvertently commit a war crime. I'm Mike Rogers, and this is Something Offbeat, where we take a closer look at the headlines that make you think, like the story of how a 2,000-year-old marble bust wound up on the bottom shelf at a Goodwill store in Central Texas. So this all goes back to August of 2018, correct? Yes, that's when I initially found him. And you are in a Goodwill store in Austin, of all places. Yes, in Northwest Austin, off Far West Boulevard. Laura Young is an antique dealer in Austin. You know, I'm looking all over the store for anything cool, interesting, unique, obviously potentially valuable since that's my job. Turn a corner, look under a table, and the bust was actually under a display table. Solid marble. He weighs 52 pounds. So not surprised that they didn't have him up on the table. It might have been one of the reasons I found him, actually, because he was kind of hidden a little bit. So I immediately touched him, checked him out, tried to pick him up, realized he's pretty heavy, and tracked a man down who was working there to pick him up and carry him to the front of the store for me to buy immediately. So you knew right away? Well, I mean, I knew and I didn't know. At the end of the day, it looked old, it looked antique, and it was a full-size, you know, life-size marble bust. It could have been two days old. I was going to buy a $35 marble bust. You know what I mean? Like, it was a good deal no matter what. Yeah, I guess at 35 bucks, you may as well take a chance, right? Correct. And so this was full-sized human head, a bust of whom? It's up for debate. We finally got an ID from the Bavarian Palace Administration that runs the museum where the head had previously been. As Drusus Germanicus, who was a famous Roman general, But there are some questions as to whether that ID is correct. So we don't know who he is. Just some old Roman guy. Yes, but probably an important one. I mean, normal Roman people weren't having their busts made. We keep calling him uh, him and he and everything. Have you given him a name? Um, I did. I named him Dennis Reynolds after (laughs) the uh, narcissistic sociopath on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. We're big It's Always Sunny fans. And I named him Dennis because, you know, he's a cold, aloof, difficult white man. (laughs) I can't, you know, it's someone that you can't have. You cannot form an emotional attachment because you know he's leaving the house at some point. So that was my nickname for him. I mean, if you look up the Dennis system on it's always sunny um it's his you know method of seducing women and 
the last step is to separate entirely, which is what the head has done, has separated entirely. So yes, he didn't assistant me. <laughs> this poor guy, he was probably a nice guy. I mean, <laughs> he was a general, maybe not. <laughs> there are some theories that he might actually be uh, Pompey the Younger, Sextus Pompey. There's actually an almost identical twin in the Louvre. It looks exactly like him, except my bust is in better condition. Now, after doing some research and reaching out to auction houses like Bonham's and Sotheby's, Young confirmed that the bust she found at that Goodwill store dated back to the first century. It once belonged to King Ludwig I of Bavaria and was later displayed in a full-scale replica of Pompeii. It was located in a part of Germany targeted by Allied forces during World War II. Any idea how this thing goes from Germany in the 1940s and winds up in a Goodwill store in Austin? The most likely thing was probably that a GI, an American GI, brought a souvenir home. The town of Schaffenberg and the Pompeianum, the villa itself where the bust was located, sustained heavy bombing at the end of World War II. I do believe the bust had been in storage, not on display at the Pompeianum because of the war but the bus went missing shortly after the war. So pretty sure that an American soldier brought him back. The speculation is back in the 1940s that some GI coming back from World War II found it and brought it back. Does that type of thing happen? And I'm with conflicts going on around the world. Does that type of thing happen a lot? Yeah, unfortunately, plunder and destruction and war go hand in hand. Shimreed Lee is the author of a book entitled Decolonize Museums, which looks at how some Western museums have accumulated their collections. And this in turn fuels an illicit global trade in stolen antiquities and other works of art, which is worth an estimated $6 billion a year. I can give you some examples. Listeners may be familiar with scenes of ISIS destroying artifacts and cultural heritage sites across Syria and Iraq, but they may not be that familiar with the business structure that ISIS set up to sell antiquities, in which leaders of the Islamic State oversaw archaeological digs and the selling of antiquities into the international art market, mostly to Western collectors. It's estimated that they made up to $7 billion in profit from this sort of trade. Another example, in the midst of the Iraq war in 2003, Baghdad fell to U.S. coalition forces and U.S. troops stood by as looters ransacked the Iraq museum, stealing nearly 200,000 antiquities. And some say, you know, they targeted the museum because they saw it as a symbol of government, kind of a pro-government symbol. But most likely it was subsistence looting. People will loot in order to survive and find a source of income, especially at a time of war. And again, many of these artifacts have been smuggled into the Western art market. In 2018, Hobby Lobby was forced to give up nearly 6,000 ancient tablets and seals after it was found out that these were illegally smuggled artifacts from Iraq. So a lot of people call these sorts of artworks blood art, kind of like blood diamonds that have been violently extracted from these sites of war zones, generally. And then they end up on the internet, or they end up in Hobby Lobby or on the website of Christie's for sale, and no one is really 
it takes time to actually investigate where this sort of blood art comes from. While the term blood art may not have existed centuries ago, Lee says it's hard to find a museum that doesn't have some looted artifacts on display. It's really impossible to find a Western museum that doesn't hold some amount of cultural heritage taken from the global south as a result of colonial rule or European conquest. Recently, a 2018 report commissioned by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, found that over 90% of the material and cultural legacy of sub-Saharan Africa is housed outside of the African continent. That's about 90,000 objects in French collections alone. And the British Museum is the world's largest receiver of these stolen goods. Macron, after commissioning that report, pledged to return thousands of African artifacts held in French museums to their countries of origins. And this announcement sort of opened up a gateway for other European countries to follow his lead. You have the Dutch government pledging to return objects held in their collections to their former colonies. Germany is entering into talks with Nigeria to return Benin bronzes. In the U.S., there's legislation that allows for human remains um, and sacred objects to be returned from museums to Native American communities. So things are definitely happening on that end. The most famous negotiation to return artifacts to their native country might involve the Elgin Marbles, a collection of marble sculptures that were an original part of the Parthenon in Athens, removed from the Acropolis in the early 1800s. I'm sure most people listening are familiar with the Elgin Marbles. This is a collection of ancient Greek sculptures which were stolen, or some say rescued, as the British put it, from Greece by Lord Elgin, the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And they're currently held at the British Museum in London, but for decades, the Greeks have been demanding that they be returned to their homeland. And actually recently, the UK and Greece announced plans for talks about potential return, but there hasn't been any movement on that end. The former director of the British Museum actually claimed that the Elgin marbles were part of the heritage of all mankind rather than the cultural property of Greece. And he described the British Museum as a museum of the world for the world. And a number of museums, including the Met and the Getty, have also declared themselves to be so-called universal museums. Um, and of course, all of these museums are based in Europe and America. So, you know, there are many different excuses and reasons that we can go through that museums have used to bolster their own claim for holding on to this cultural heritage. But if you dig a little bit deeper, these arguments start to crumble. Do any of these museums ever give some of these artifacts back? You mentioned the marbles, right? Have the marbles been returned to Greece? They have not, although they are saying that there will be talks of return. And recently, an institute in the UK has been 3D printing a replica of the marbles in the hopes that the British Museum would take the 3D printed version and the authentic version would go back to Greece. I'm not sure how the British Museum feels about that, but things are certainly changing. But some groups, mainly those in what's known as the Global South, that would be Central and South America, Africa, Southern Asia, have had even more artifacts plundered to be displayed in collections far from home. There certainly has not been much movement when it comes to other stolen objects um, in the British Museum's collections, most notably the Benin bronzes 
which is a collection of thousands of pieces that were looted by the British in the 1800s from the Kingdom of Benin, which is present-day Nigeria. And today, these are scattered all over the world, including in the US. The Met holds around nearly 200 objects traceable to this looting. Another major point of contention is the illicit trade and holding of human remains, especially in the US. Many museums are embroiled in battles involving the return of human remains to indigenous communities. And really what I'm trying to say is that it's so hard to put an exact number on the amount of these remains on cultural heritage from these communities that were plundered and are currently held in the collections of Western museums. I can't imagine there are too many governments in the world that are going to force museums and collectors to give it all back. Is the solution maybe more traveling exhibitions so that people who want to see some of these things don't have to travel halfway around the world? What's the answer? I think traveling exhibitions is a great idea. A lot of museums are also digitizing their collections because, you know, these are in in some ways can teach us a lot about where we've come from as humanity. And so they should be accessible to all humans at the same time as a part of really reckoning with colonial history and the pain and trauma of European colonization. As part of that system of justice, these objects do need to be returned, but it's not an either or thing. They can be returned and they can be more accessible through digital means. So it's really hard to actually recognize and keep up with this crime, especially because cultural objects aren't automatically recognized as illicit. They're not drugs or guns. I mean, they could be lurking on a shelf at your local Goodwill. So in many cases, these objects have also changed hands multiple times, making culpability very difficult to determine. I think I know the answer to this question, but does it make your blood boil sometimes when you go into museums and see some of these things? Absolutely. And I think part of the problem is that museums need to be more transparent about their collections. They need to tell the stories of where these artifacts have come from. A lot of wall texts tell very dry, neutral, authoritative text stories without actually really reckoning with the history of these objects. And so part of the reason for my own frustration is not just that these objects are there, but that as audiences, we are not being told the full story. Thanks to a great find, we know most of the story of the bust that Laura Young found. It'll be on display at the San Antonio Museum of Art until next May before it travels back to Germany. It worked out the best possible way it could with everyone technically being happy and me not accidentally getting sued or going to jail. When it's all over in San Antonio and Dennis is back in Germany, wherever he winds up in Germany, you going to go visit him? Probably. My husband is a scientist at UT. He travels a lot. There's a big conference in Austria that he goes to occasionally. So we might head to Austria and then pop over to Germany and uh, check him out. But I did see him hundreds of times a day, every day for nearly four years. I'm Mike Rogers at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Something Offbeat. Now, if you see one of those headlines that makes you think twice, send us a voice memo to somethingoffbeat at odyssey.com. 
This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake, with audio editing by Chris Blake, original music by Myron Kaplan, and editorial support from Cooper Mall. To keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.